You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray now that we would understand your love for us. Help us now, Holy Spirit, by your power, power, all power, surely is thine. And we believe in your power, Holy Spirit. So help us, we pray, perhaps some of us for the first time tonight to know the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Last week I introduced myself as Nathan, which is still true. Uh, and uh, I introduced myself by saying I love time travel, which is also still true. But here's some other things that I love. I love mountains. I love steak. I love my wife, Marcy, and my four sons. I love the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Counting Crows and Cademan's Call. I love reading about history. I love podcasts. I love podcasts about history. I love Bluebell Cookies and Cream Ice Cream. I love the Southwest Benny from The Range. I love the Cro-Magnon from Baggins Gourmet Sandwiches. I love the Carne Adovada from Church Street Cafe. I love movies, I love economics and philosophy and theology, I love sports, and perhaps more than like the sports that are actually taking place on the field, I like the aspect of team building, like the NFL draft and the minor leagues and baseball. And I love God. I think you know me now. Uh, But isn't isn't it weird that I use the same word, love, to describe the same thing that I feel about Carne Adovada and my wife? toward the NFL draft and the eternal God of the universe. Love, at least as we think of it and describe it as Americans, is a really, really weird thing. It's an emotion, but it's also an action. It's certainly a commitment. But most often, as Americans anyway nowadays, when we say that we love something, we most typically mean that I enjoy the feelings that this thing brings to me. So 
when I say I love carne arrivada, I love the way, I love the feelings that it brings to my mouth. But this is not the understanding of love that we see throughout the Bible. So what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. What is love? What, what, does, what does love mean? What is it? The past three weeks of this Advent season, we have thought through the four traditional Advent themes of hope and of joy and of peace. And tonight, we'll try to answer some of these questions about what is love? What does it mean? What are its effects by wrapping up this incredible chapter of Romans 8 and thinking through this final theme of love? So we'll do so by turning the, the diamond of God's love of this section of chapter 8 and looking at two different facets, the eternal love of God and the sustaining love of God. So first of all, the eternal love of God. Let's, let's jump back a bit, grab the last three verses of our section from last week so that we can like dukes of hazard jump ourselves onto the highway of God's love in the verses that follow. So verses 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So verse 28, a favorite amongst refrigerator magnets and throw pillows across the country comes, this comes on the heels of Paul's thinking about groaning, about suffering. And like we said last week, our interpretation of this verse helped by the context, hinges almost entirely on how we might define the word good. He works all things together for good. If we merely mean that God works all things together in such a way that our external circumstances are improved, maybe in a roundabout way, maybe we don't see our external circumstances improve for a decade or two, but ultimately in the end, God will always improve our external circumstances with finances or with job promotions or increasing health. Everything's always improving. Well, then this verse can certainly come as a hurdle for us, a stumbling block to faith. Wait, I, I don't see the good improving. But when we realize that we are creatures with perhaps the perspective of like an ant at the state fair, unable to see more than like a foot ahead, much less miles ahead, we know that oftentimes when what the world would interpret as bad circumstances are actually for our good. And if we could see what God sees and know what God knows, we would want him to respond in exactly the way that he always wisely responds and acts. He works all things together for our good, meaning making us more and more like Jesus, loving and worshiping like Jesus does. Now, one more observation here. Did you notice that what Paul doesn't say in verse 28 is that, and we know for those who believe, or who we, we know for those who have faith, God works all things together for good. One of the most immediate and obvious ways that we can tell if we actually have belief, if we actually have faith, if our belief in faith is actually genuine, is by our love for God through adversity. It's much easier to say that you have faith and that you believe in God's promises when things are just peachy, when things are going really well. But for those who love God for who he is, in and of himself, when everything else leaves you, 
that's when you know that your faith is real. If you still love him in those times. I think we all know of folks who, when times of suffering came, they abandoned their so-called faith. The circumstances just got too difficult for them. And they left their so-called faith and belief in God. And I think that this indicates that they actually weren't loving God. They were perhaps using God for increased benefits. As Tim Keller says, love in the Bible is never merely theoretical or intellectual, nor merely sentimental or emotional, nor merely duty and will-based. Love is setting the heart on God so that in all you do, you determine to please him. It's not just this theoretical thing of, or an emotional thing where I can say, yeah, I love God. But then the next day, when suffering comes, say, well, why in the world is he acting in this way? He must not be a good God. It's not love. Someone who determines to please God. Not perfectly. Remember last week, oftentimes we can only observe the first fruits of our growing love for God. But this is who a Christian is. Someone who loves God. Not just knows about him or says that she loves him, but sets her heart on God, determining to please him. Now, how is it that a person actually loves God? Well, because God first loved this person. The MO of God's salvation, beginning with Adam, to Abraham, to Israel, to the disciples, to Paul himself, who's writing this letter, is that of God moving toward people who are hiding from him, who are disinterested and or perhaps even completely oblivious to him. People who were formerly his enemies, now he radically intervenes in their lives, and he calls them. And these people, because of his radical intervention, then their entire worlds are radically reoriented, and they're brought to life so that they respond in faith, with actual faith. They're not robots, without a will of their own. But God radically intervenes and frees their will. A will that can now actually know and love him rather than the bondage of the will that they formerly experienced. A bondage to only loving self and sin. God radically intervenes and frees people to life. And as we saw last week, Paul has zoomed out on the entire timeline of salvation here. We can only, from our perspective, see one day at a time, right? Perhaps we can see someone's initial profession of faith in Christ, where they say, I am his, he is mine, my life now is entirely about his life, and his life is now entirely about my life, and I want this to be declared publicly, I want to be baptized and proclaim this to the church and to the world. But from God's perspective, while we only see a day at a time in progression and progression, God removed from time and from an eternal perspective, can see that this first movement will inevitably culminate in glorification, will inevitably culminate with no more sin, with no more decaying body, no more groaning. It's as good as done. When God starts something, he finishes it with a human being. And these five movements in these verses of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. Theologians over the years have called this the golden chain of salvation. 
These are all interlinked, and when one starts, the other one finishes. This is the sweetest and most comforting reality in all of existence for every person who is presently loving God and banking on his promises. That when I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Of course, those who merely say that they love God when over time it becomes evident that they, they don't, they don't reach glorification. They don't reach that final culminated stage of no more sin, of perfect joy and contentment with God, but the eternal love of God, his eternal, securing, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love will hold his children. Whereas John MacArthur says, if I could lose my salvation, I would. But for those whom the Father has fixed his saving and redeeming love upon, losing salvation is not even a category. As if my sin could overcome the saving love of God. I have a such, too high a view of myself, if that is the case. Looking around at the first fruits then of God beginning his work of salvation, we can then look up along the chain, the eternal golden chain to the destination because of God's eternal love. This is incredible, incredible stuff. The eternal love of God, what he starts, he will finish. If that's the eternal love of God, what then shall we say to these things? Great question, Nathan, Paul says. Uh, secondly, the sustaining love of God. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So after considering five connected acts of love for, from God for his children, Paul will close out this incredible chapter with five rhetorical questions. He's pulling out every tool he has to persuade us of the love of God in Christ. He asks five questions in these few verses which have no answer. As John Stott says about these questions, Paul hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. The first question Paul hurls defiantly into space is that if God is for us, who can be against us? He asks this question in this kind of way because if he had just asked who is against us, we could have responded with a long list of significant opponents. The world is opposed to Christ and to his people. Our own flesh, our own sinful impulses are against the kind of person that God is making us to be. What about the entire list that he'll list out in verse 35 of tribulation, of distress, of persecution, of famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword? These are certainly against us. Death itself is against us. 
Sometimes circumstances are so bad. Finances are difficult. Our health is failing. Relationships are disintegrating. Sometimes it feels as if the entire universe is against us. But God is not asleep at the wheel. Or even worse, as I think sometimes we might think, that he's awake at the wheel, but he is intentionally crashing it. Or he's not capable of preventing other people from crashing into the car of our life. No, he's the God of the universe. He has created the universe with a word. And there is certainly evil in the world, and creation groans with pain. But Jesus promises to be with his people, even unto the end of the age. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So for those who are united to Christ by faith, since God is for them, who can be against them? No one. None. So second question, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, if Paul had just asked, will God not graciously give us all things? We might look around at our lives and him and haw a bit. Or just say, no. Look around, God. You're not giving me all things. Are you kidding? Look at this mess. Look at the way that my life is turning out. But we know that our circumstances are an unreliable barometer for God's love for us. If our circumstances are an unreliable barometer, what is a reliable barometer? How do God's children know that he loves them? Well, how does Paul ask the question to prove God's love for us? He points us directly to the cross. Where did ever such love and sorrow meet? No. Has there ever been an act of love so great as the maker of the universe, not only being born like us, being made into a human, being born in a barn, but then living and dying for his people. If God has done the hard part, this is the argument Paul is making, if God has done the hard part, why in the world would we think that he would not then do the easy part? If he has come to live and die for us, why would we think that he would then just later on down the road abandon his promises? not to complete his work. It's like if I decided next Christmas, I want to buy my wife, Marcy, I want to buy her a super, super fancy car. Like, forget all the treasure principle stuff we just talked about and stewardship and all that. I want to buy her like a $100,000 car next Christmas. And so I decide for the next 12 months, I, I've got to get a couple of extra jobs. And I'm working in the evenings and on the weekends, hours and hours of extra work perhaps in a job that is just an incredibly frustrating job, but because I really, really, really want to give her this car, I will go to work gladly to get this car. And then 10 months from now or so, late October, I'll begin doing some shopping and I'll find this like killer deal on this car in Pittsburgh. So I'll buy like a one-way flight to Pennsylvania and I'll get there and catch an Uber to the dealership, haggle a bit with the salesman, and then start driving all the way across the country to get this car back to my wife. All the way across New Mexico, into Albuquerque, I get to our neighborhood and say, you know what, that was dumb. 
I'm just going to pull over here in Smith's. And I get out of the car, and I just walk home the last few blocks. I don't, I don't want to give her the car anymore. That's ridiculous. But I think that's about the kind of way that we think God is moving towards us, how he's not acting in the way that we want him to. I'm sure the metaphor breaks down, but the triune God, the triune God is driving the car in the neighborhood. He is almost home. He has done the hard part of purchasing your salvation. While you yet don't have the full possession of all of God's promises, you don't get to drive with the top down in the convertible of feeling the wind in your hair of complete sinlessness and of complete joy and contentment in Christ. It's yours. But to assume God is abandoning his promises, that he's like got, he's gotten out of the car, he's just decided not to to give you all the things, the culmination of his work, right when he is around the corner. It's just the, it's just the height of short-sightedness. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us graciously all things? There is no answer. Of course he will. He's done the hard part. Not that he will give you all things, you know, like your dream job and your dream house and your dream spouse. Not those kind of all things, but the kind of things that we actually need. The kind of things that we would actually want if we knew all things that God knows. So Christian, do not look around at the world. Do not look around at your circumstances and wonder if God loves you. Look to the cross and know that God loves you. This is the height and the depth and the length of his love for you, the cross. It's immeasurable. It's never ending. He will give you all things. He will give you possession of the car, complete ownership of all of the inheritance of the blessings of God. Not yet. And we don't get to like take some hill of sanctification where now all of our sin is gone. He is making us that way over time. But he will give us all things. He will make your joy complete in himself. Questions 3 and 4. Verse, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Next question. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If I were to walk outside and just ask, are there any charges against me? Would anyone like to condemn? Like an entire stadium of people would stand up with things to say. Marcy would say, I got some. I got some charges. He gets really frustrated with home projects. And he, he talks in anger to inanimate objects. He can be lazy and self-centered. In 12 years of marriage, he has wronged me and he has hurt me and he's made me cry. My kids would stand up. they say, we got some. We got some. Sometimes he's more interested in his phone or in a football game or even home projects or books than he is with us. He gets frustrated with us and sometimes totally loses his cool. People all over Albuquerque would stand up and contribute 
Many of you would stand up and contribute. The time that he completely forgot this big event in my life. He just, he, did, he, had, he had no idea what was going on. He was completely unsympathetic and gave terrible counsel. And then, wait for it, people from all along my past would stand up. My mother and father with a list too long to read out loud of all the ways of dishonoring and disobeying them. Childhood friends that I was miserable toward. High school girlfriends that I dishonored and didn't care for more than myself. College roommates that I manipulated and subtly took advantage of. And then above all that, Satan himself, his name meaning the accuser, stands and says, just look at him. If you could see into his soul like I could. Look at his doubt and his anxiety. Look at his laziness and selfishness. Look at his weakness. That is certainly not someone that God is moving toward, is making something into. That is not a son of God. The den is deafening the loud and overwhelming condemnation is crushing. But then the defense attorney stands, he whom himself is lowly and humble, who has nothing to behold, but then stands confidently and with authority over it all, says, that's enough. Nathan is so wrapped up in me. There's not anything that he has done, but because of my work, my obedience, my love, my joy, my perfection, he is united to me. What is past is done away with, thrown into the sea, not to be remembered any longer. What is present is still sin, but it is dying and I have dealt it a mortal blow. It has no more condemnation over him. And what is future, I have died and been raised for that too. So that is enough. Christian, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He died in the place of condemnation. More than that, who was raised? He lives now. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? He loves you more than you could imagine. The Son has given you his life and his death, and he is interceding for you at this moment by your name. That's incomprehensible. The Spirit hears your groans of weakness and he comes with supporting, interceding groans of his own to increase your hope and your faith. Incomprehensible. And if all that is true, then Paul has one final question for us. If all that's true, Christian, then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? 
But shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It sure looks like there is a whole lot separating us from the love of Christ. It sure looks like the love of Christ is a really leaky filter. Like, I would imagine if I were to draw this thing up, that the love of Christ would protect me from a bunch of stuff, from all of this kind of stuff. And yet it seems to be letting all, all kinds of terrible things get through to me, to his people. And Paul quotes from Psalm 44, where the psalmist is crying out to God, like, how long, O Lord, how long will you remain in silence and injustice forever? Verse 36, as it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet, even though all of that is true, Paul considers it all. And in fact, everything in that list, everything in that list in verse 35, Paul has experienced personally. And yet, he says, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, we are those who have overcome the world. Overcome tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. Not that those things can't or won't still come from, for us, but it's that they won't ultimately destroy us. They won't extinguish our hope and our faith. For those whom he has eternally foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified, this kind of groaning sadness will not snuff out the perhaps even weak flame that is still holding on for dear life, but will not snuff out our love for God. But through these things, actually increase our love for God. Loosening our grip on the things of this earth. Loosening our grip, get grip on the gifts, and instead attaching our grip securely on the wise and good giver. This is a good Christmas reflection. Like, as you open Instagram over the next two days, you are going to be tempted that every other human on the planet is happier than you are. Instagram is a vile, vile place to go. It's a fun, it's a good gift, we can use it for good. But man, it breeds discontentment. Perhaps as you come up on these days, tomorrow, the day after, with memories of sadness, memories of loss, but Christmas isn't a holiday of external happiness. Of making everything look all jolly and nice when things are breaking. We reflect on a night where the God of glory was born into a dung-filled barn. Where he was brought into life through screaming and blood. There is nothing Instagrammable about the first Christmas night. And yet it is the way that God enters into the mess of this world and brings us into peace, brings us into joy and into hope and into love, interceding on our behalf. The Son of God becomes a Son of Man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. What? Christmas is incomprehensible that God, what did we sing earlier? For all our sins, one day he'll die to make us sons of God on high. Let every heart prepare him room. 
the promises have all come true. So verse 38, I am sure, Paul says, in reflection of all of this, he's done asking his questions. And now he says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And do you know this love? Perhaps is it a bit, it's theological and theoretical, but it remains theoretical. Perhaps tonight you're feeling the God of love wooing you, calling you. That you might know the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus in a personal, saving, loving way. That you might turn from a disposition only of sin and self to that of loving God whom is loving you. The love of God in Christ Jesus is not something to just consider for a few weeks in December and then pack back up into a box and put into the attic for 11 months. The love of God in Christ Jesus is meant to be felt, to be experienced, to be dwelled in, to be banked on. More and more increasingly so every day, oh, for about the next trillion years or so. So tonight, when you come to the table, I'd encourage you, as you take the bread, to remind yourself, as you take it, to say, the, the love of God through Christ, or perhaps, maybe even, Jesus loves me. This I know. And consider the ways in which Jesus, his love for his people, ought to then explode out through his people, for each other and for the world, as we share communion, not just with him, but with one another. Christ Church, I, I love you. <laughs> uh, not just the feelings that you give me. Sometimes we give each other very poor feelings, right? And oftentimes we can think of someone else in our body and say, I don't actually particularly enjoy the feelings that that person gives me but say in a committed, resolute way, I love this person and I love this church because of what Christ has done for us all. I hope Romans 8 was as helpful for you as it was for me. It's been really, really good for me. Lifting our eyes in hope for Jesus' second coming to make all things new. Just a heads up though, we're really excited next week to have Asher Griffin from Desert Springs Church preach for us, and then we'll get back to 1 Timothy 2 the next week. Uh, well, not exactly. As many of you know, perhaps one of the most dangerous minefields in the entire Bible is the second half of 1 Timothy 2, gender, men's and women's roles in the church, and the like. So before we actually get to 1 Timothy 2, since Paul grounds many of his arguments in thinking through these things in creation, of Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to take a week to try our best to arrive at as wise and good as possible a right understanding of gender before we actually get to Paul's argument of 1 Timothy 2, which comes later down the line. So we'll get back to that together. Whew. We did it. We did it. Romans 8. 
the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the greatest book in the world. Let's thank God for it. Our Father, we are so thankful. Thankful that we can call you Father, that you have made us sons and daughters through your Son, Jesus. Help us, we pray. Help us to know what is the height and the depth and the immeasurable love of God through Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and intercede in the theater of our own hearts. Help us when we are groaning with doubt and anxiety, when we are groaning in faithlessness and just pain. Support us, we pray. Increase our faith. Help us to actually act on your promises and not just consider them theoretically. Increase our joy in the present as we look toward the future. Increase our love as we swim in a deeper understanding and a deeper experience of your love for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we pray for these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.